Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chilling with Charlie. Today's guest is Darren O'Shaughnessy, who is doing some pretty handy analytics for the St Kilda Saints. Correlation doesn't imply causation, but he also just happened to be around the Hawks during their three-peat, and previous to that, he was chief statistician for Champion Data. Running a podcast costs money. Chilling with Charlie is proudly sponsored by Betfair Australia. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. They are not a bookmaker and you can see how they champion data modelling by checking out bit.ly forward slash betfaircharlie, gamble responsibly. I'm here today with Darren, who you might know better on Twitter as Ranking SW. Thanks, Robert. Um, and I can confirm that Charlie is here, currently gnawing on the bars of her, um, of her cage. So she's going to monitor the whole thing for us. So why don't we just start off with, tell us a bit about yourself, your background and how you got into sports. So I've, I've always been interested in, in maths and in sport, uh, mainly watching sport rather than playing it because I didn't actually have any talent for playing it. My, my brother got all those good genes. But even when I was at primary school, I'd sit um, at my blackboard. So this will tell you sort of low-tech environment we had. And I had some dice, even one that my dad had made from an electronics kit, electronic dice. I had a farm, a a, a gate from a farm set, a toy set, um, that I would flip to basically make heads or tails. And I'd use the dice and the gate to generate sports results in uh, footy, in tennis, in cricket. And I'd get a sense out of that on how random some of the results could be. You know, you could flip that gate and see it come up the same way eight times in a row and that would, you know, some some team then gets eight scores in a row against the other. And just gave me a different appreciation on um, the the randomness that that there can be in the world without having it set up that way. And and then when I was... um, about 10 we got a Commodore 64 that changed things again so I would again program the Commodore 64 when I wasn't playing summer games or one of those sporting sims to just write my own I'd write entire Sheffield Shield seasons to to simulate or um, you know seasons of of football and and just monitor what sort of results I'd get and if I changed the the random number generator in in different ways you know to have different strengths of teams how that would be reflected in in the results so it was really a a calling from that young to just sort of um, want to apply that sort of framework statistics without knowing what it really was then to to sport so yeah that that was early I guess but the you know when I went to uni I I specialised in physics I thought that I was going to work in basically particle physics, um, got a degree in computational and statistical physics um, in a field called quantum chromodynamics, which is sort of fallen out of favour nowadays. But I got to learn things about um, parallel computing, Markov chain, Monte Carlo, all these sorts of things that are now a lot more used outside of, outside of physics in, in broader st- statistics in other, in other fields as well. So... Yeah, after after uni, I got a job in a computer science department doing research on, again, parallel algorithms, and from there went to um, the Australian Artificial Intelligence Institute. And that was uh, based in Melbourne, working for companies like BHP, Optus, Folding Pharmaceuticals, um, just applying what was the cutting edge of artificial intelligence at that time, which is the mid-90s, so completely different to now. 
applying that sort of stuff in real world situations and gave me a, a good sense of what what was really needed out there. But on the side, I was always following the sort of sports simulation and um, doing tennis rankings on the side, which were actually pretty successful at the time. Um, I don't really like betting, but I was making enough money on the on the side just betting on the, these tennis rankings that I was developing. And I had a mailing list of over 100 people at the time and was blogging or at least posting weekly to rec.sport.tennis, if anyone remembers the news groups, um, with these updated rankings each week which um, seem to give a pretty good look at, at uh, you know apart from the ATP rankings and the WTA rankings uh, what the real strengths of these players were. Are these ratings still online for tennis anyway? Uh, I think they're archived on my website somewhere but I don't even know if that link works anymore. Yeah it's probably not worth revisiting it was really tennis fanboy stuff and trusting that the computer knows everything. <laughs> Okay, so you've gone from working for the Australian Artificial Intelligence Institute to Champion Data? Yeah, um, and kind of a coincidence. Um, the, the tennis rankings actually got noticed by um, Professor Stephen Clark at Swinburne and some of his students, and he put me in touch with Ted Hopkins, who wrote an article on what I was doing for the Financial Review, so that was how we got to know each other. And in mid-'99, the Australian government, in their wisdom... I think it was a Labor government at the time, can't quite remember, decided that... Um, oh, sorry, Charlie wants to get involved here. <laughs> that the R&D credits that companies had got to that point should be brought back from, I think it was 125% credit to 100%, change the incentives for these big companies to actually invest in R&D and outsource R&D and the business model for something like the um, AAAI basically got demolished overnight. At that time, I was looking around for something else and still talking to, to Ted after, um, you know, we'd, we'd been in touch after that article. And he, at that time, got venture capital to expand Champion Data and brought me on as one of the first employees to to be the chief IT architect and, and chief statistician. So it was, um, yeah, one of these lucky coincidences that I, at the time, uh, and it probably was, it felt like a dream job to get something that I'd always been interested in. So tell us about the early days at Champion Data and how different that is to, I guess, when you left. Yeah, um, well, Ted was, and he still is, a visionary. He's an amazing guy to talk to, although he had a stroke last year, which means that his communication isn't as good as it used to be. And he'd run also a successful publishing business called Champion Publishing before he started Champion Data. He'd been working with Dennis Pagan through their very successful years in the 90s, and he'd come up with this extra layer of statistics. So traditionally, you know, it had been marks, you know, kicks marks, handballs had been recorded. Some of the clubs were doing a bit more than that. In fact, Geelong, even back in the 60s, were recording, uh, were plotting exactly where the ball was going out of every centre bounce and all sorts of things like that. Even when Ted was playing in, in 1970, he said Ron Barassi would run experiments at training, that you know, about handballs and about where the ball would go after uh, an aerial contest. Um, so there was a lot of, of good work going on that he'd been able to touch on. So he added things like hardball gets, contested marks, um, you know, zones of the ground that, that was context to the basic stats that um, North Melbourne used and then eventually other clubs were using in the 90s as well. So that, that was the, the first layer. But when I joined there and, and we were working in a number of sports because the venture capital basically was saying uh, we can apply this model to a lot of sports. So we had a, an all-sport uh, platform that we were developing 
And I, I really wanted to link these sort of atomic events that we were recording together and give them even more context. So what happened next? What happened before that? Uh, where was it on the field? So I, I developed some software to do all of that, um, to plot you know, exactly where on the field. And in AFL, we've got this unique situation where all the fields are different shapes, but taking that into account, where on the field everything's happening, what happened before that, what happened after that, what was the chain of possession that that was in, how did it start, how did it end, when was it disrupted, what phases of contested and uncontested, pressured and unpressured sort of play did that chain of possession go through. So we were able to to just give another layer again onto AFL and we applied that pretty successfully to rugby league and rugby union as well, although it never really caught on in the markets outside of Melbourne. So since I left there, they've they've also added things like pressure quality, so pressure points types of um, you know approach on the ball carrier, things that are really needed, you know, to get a sense of what decisions that the player can make, and, and they have joined up with um, GPS tracking as well. Though frustratingly, we d- we don't get access to much of that at the moment. And then from Champion Data, you've moved to Hawthorne. Um, there's there's a bit of a gap in there. So actually, after I left Champion, Ted left soon afterwards as well, and we worked together at his business, Ted Sport, for a while. We did a few different things, worked with uh, bookmakers, worked with punters, had some pretty good modelling, but not much commercial success, I guess, and there are a few other guys involved in that as well. And I picked up some clients in other sports. So I was doing work in, in TV. I, I think I worked in... Oh, about a dozen different sports as well. And, and the Hawthorne thing came along with David Rath and uh, Mark Evans at Hawthorne wanted to get some better visualisations of what was happening in a game. They'd been over to the US, seen what they were doing there in, in the NFL, especially with drive chains um, to you know get a sense of how the which team has been dominating the game. So they asked me to, to build that visualisation and then you know, a few more over time as well and it became a sort of um, regular consultancy that I was there for, um, well, seven years in the end. It was a, a really terrific environment to yeah get to know more about how the club really you know, needed to be able to use the data. And, yeah, I, I sort of had... So at, at um, Champion, I'd had this sort of bottom-up approach of um, we're recording these atomic events, um, you know, a possession. We've got a bit of context around that. We can basically solve any of your coach's problems by just building up a picture out of those atoms. And, and that was the way I thought as someone who came out of out of game theory or, or whatever other background, you know, statistics, playing with a computer and thinking my simulation tells me everything. But it really then was I, I'm not meeting the needs that a top-down approach would. So I need to have the way that the coaches are setting strategies about the game, the language they're using, the sort of questions that they want answered. There's extra semantic layers that need to go into it on top of the atomic events, even on top of chains of possessions. You have to start at the top and work down to say, what type of play is, is being represented by this data and, um, you know, just classify it even as, as simple as slow play and fast play. And that just uh, doesn't just mean that the ball's moving fast, but it means a specific setup. So all, all that sort of stuff I, I needed to, to relearn and sort of undo what, what I'd put together before um, and, and add on top of it. So what's an example of that way you've gone, I guess, top down? Yeah, it, it's really asking 
you know, my, my sort of role or the role of a data analyst within a club is decision support. So the coaches, the recruiters, their decision makers, what, what can I do to help them make that decision? And to do that, I've got to frame it in their language. Um, so let's say we're asking about what sort of style is our next opponent playing? Do they mainly kick long down the line? Do they do switch plays? Do they go at 45 degrees towards the centre of the ground? So you've got some raw data about, you know, where the ball was at each possession. You kind of know where it was delivered to. You don't really know who was there or why they did it. And maybe you can change a team's behaviour by um, stacking, you know, the middle of the ground or stacking down the line so that they will be forced to go in a different way. So what, what we're doing at um, St Kilda is really using that description that the coaches are using, whether it's a long down the line kick and overlaying that on top of the data. So you'll never get a perfect match with the atomic level data or even chains of data to, to match that description from someone applying their expert pattern recognition, watching the video and saying, firstly, these were the decisions available to the player. Secondly, this is why he did it. Thirdly, this was the playing style that the team seemed to have adopted or their structure around the ball. So that sort of stuff, until you've got perfect player level tracking, you have to really put in and and then cross-link with all your other data as well. So what's a typical week involved for you at St Kilda? Uh, well, given it's only been a few weeks in season now, we're still getting getting a hang of that. Because at the moment I'm still building the sort of medium-term frameworks that we're going to use. And, and um, the St Kilda Analysis Academy, which I know we'll talk about in a bit as well, it's just starting to collect data on every team. And we need to... Yes, build reports that um, that support that level of analysis. Um, but also I'm, I'm working on game days, supporting specific questions, mainly just sitting there and shutting up and listening and, and making sure I know what sort of things they're wanting to know. But we've got some broad KPIs, for want of a better word. I, I don't really like the KPI approach because it you know, can, can set a target that you, you know, your players achieve in, in ways that you don't want them to. But... You can certainly monitor some things and one of the, the key ones is just your total shot equity or your expected score. So we've just come out of a game against Fremantle where we lost by five points. We had 23 shots to their 21 and probably should have won by two to three goals on the quality of shots that we had. So keeping them across that, knowing when their strategies, what, what type of plays are really working, not just on the number of goals that they've scored or on the raw sort of whether it succeeded or failed, that, that's the sort of stuff I'm doing there. And then, and then we track that across the, the season as well. Stats Insider is Australia's home of predictions, with custom machine learning models providing dynamic projections for sport leagues and competitions in Australia and around the world. When you're looking for sports probabilities and predictions, there's no better place to start than with Stats Insider's data-focused analytical content. Statsinsider.com.au, your new home of sports predictions. So tell us about the St Kilda Academy, the analytics. 
Yeah, so this is an initiative of, of Chris Mackay, who's an analyst who's been there for about six or seven years. Um, he was setting that be before I joined, and it's in conjunction with um, one of the local institutes, um, CEDA, in the Moorabbin, and also it, it's also drawn in some um, other students from tertiary institutions, other institutions around the place. So they get accreditation for their work at St Kilda and we get the result, the fruits of their labour, which is they go through video and code it the way that we want to describe the game. And they also learn a bit about um, statistical analysis, about their day-to-day practices in, in football. So it, it's been working really well for us um, in the pre-season and, and now that we're starting to get some data that, that we just haven't had access to before, you know, how do teams actually set up their structures around the ball? We can do that on a methodical basis and then measure the success of different strategies and counter strategies over time as well. How does one become involved with the St Kilda Academy? So say you're listening and you're like, oh, I want to get involved. Yeah, so the contact there is Chris Mackay at, at St Kilda and he's easy enough to, to contact through the club or, or, you know, I can certainly do that if you want to get in touch with you on Twitter. But, um, yeah, it's obviously like an intern sort of job. The, 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 the young men and women come in uh, one, one and a half days a week. They can even do more time outside of that if they're really interested. And the other way is through CEDA as well to, to get involved that way. Okay, so you mentioned there's training to go along in the academy training. So is that classroom-based? How, how does that work? Uh, there, yeah, there, so there's regular, as you'd know, there's you know sports science, sports um, administration, degrees and diplomas going on all the time. So this is part of that environment as well. Um, but we do give them regular... I guess, lectures or classroom um, talks with invited speakers from, from analytics or from, you know, football. Yeah, it, it's it's teaching them the basics of, of the industry. You know, for 18-, 19-year-old kids, it's, it's quite a good introduction, I reckon. So what kind of questions are you hoping to answer through this academy and with this extra layer of data that you're maybe not able to answer with what's currently available? Yeah, well, the, the sort of stuff is where a team's trying to find space and where are they trying to stop other teams playing so it's a description of how they're set up around stoppages or around other contests it's qualitative information about how they're going inside 50 I don't want to sort of give too much away but it's it's set up to just give more about the context in which the players are making their decisions and then when you have all of this data in place, you can compare the success of, of whatever they were doing and, and not just on, on the goals but on the ultimate position that they made with that play or, you know, that they, they got a shot out of it or whatever. So all of the, the work that we're doing in building up the database that includes, you know, champion data stats as well as what we're recording ourselves, we're trying to avoid this dichotomy of, you know, we did this in a win, we did that in a loss. You know, we did that and it led to a goal, that didn't. It's really putting a more continuous value on each thing that happens in a game. How difficult has that communication been between wins and losses and trying to get through different messaging? Yeah, this is really interesting. Like, it's as an outsider to a club, and I guess I can't call myself that now, but... You, you make assumptions about what coaches are talking about. In fact, the environment at St Kilda and at Hawthorne is becoming quite analytical. They're educated about biases. 
they're willing to learn and change the the way that they think about things. Um, and yeah, the, the main tension that I find in a, in a club environment is that I'm not a natural storyteller. Um, I, I need to learn from my 11 year old son on this. He can tell very tall tales, but the whole goal of analytics is to remove that sort of anecdote and get to the heart of what the data is telling you, you know, if you've corrected properly for the context and everything else. Whereas coaching is all about motivating stories for your players and it needs to be, it needs to have that heart of truth about what's going to work, but it also needs to pump them up in, in different ways that I, you know, don't really have that experience of. So, yeah, there's always this um, challenge of how do you go from an analytical report on, you know, this opposition does this or we've been unsuccessful in this area and turn it into something that they can use in the coach in in coaching in, in changing the behaviour of the team as a whole or specific players or, or a, a group of players, and I certainly don't claim to have solved that, but I know that that's you know, that's a, a part of research or of um, practice in clubs that I'm really interested in uh, talking to experts on because that's that's the stuff that changes the way that you know clubs function and, and helps them succeed. It's not enough to just have you know, really good analysis, great techniques and tools, you have to be able to support the decision makers and support them in their telling of stories. And sometimes that might mean that, yep, we've we've worked out a correlation here that is hard to explain with in-depth numbers. So then you'll cherry pick a win-loss number or you'll cherry pick a goals number as an example of it because that tells the story better and, and this Robbie Chancellor is, is sort of the master of this at St Kilda that he understands that it's two-way footy you know we're, we're playing to make territory one way but also defend if the ball comes back the other way because it's an inherently chaotic game but at the same time when we talk to a you know, half exhausted player at half time we need to frame it as geez they've got four goals out of that we, we might know that it was you know, more subtle than just four goals, but that is the way that it communicates to them that it's important that this changes. Are you able to give an example of something that maybe was counterintuitive to either you or the coaches and something that the data was able to bring out? Uh, maybe I can go back to my very first data analysis of Champion Data and then an update this year. Um, so sort of spanning 20 years here, but one of the first things that when we had... Um, you know, we're starting to collect more context on data. We had long kick-ins and short kick-ins. So, you know, you, you, a team would do a long kick-in, you know, obviously for distance to prevent the opposition being able to have a direct shot back at goal if they happen to get it, and the short kick-in for more control and, and better movement. And the very first bit of analysis I did with Champion was just showed that on the whole, short kick-ins were leading to better outcomes. And as a naive analyst at the time, that really surprised me that um, possession was so much more important than the extra 20 or 30 metres that you know t- to put the ball at risk. And now this year we've got, of course, the new rules of, of kick-ins where the player can automatically play on from the goal square and, and quite a lot of teams are then adopting longer kick-ins. But amazingly, this has led to fewer end-to-end goals from kick-ins. In fact, it's pretty much halved over the pre-season. And it's the, the same thing getting in there, that um, just because you can get more distance doesn't mean you should. Sometimes your structure is better suited by slow play and actually even though you think you've got a potential for continuing possession fast and ahead of the body of players, 
there's times when you shouldn't do that because you know your game plan is going to be hurt if it does turn over. And th- those sort of subtleties are all throughout clubs. But being able to test that and use the right um, sort of subdivisions of the data to test that is really important. So recently Melbourne has come under fire for, I guess, maybe tanking. Uh, you did some interesting analysis on, uh, I guess, the value of draft picks. Are you able to run us through that and how that might have applied to the Melbourne situation? Yeah, this was um, after I left Champion. Um, I did a few different things in research, just wanted to sort of answer some questions that had been bugging me or just to explore some ideas that I hadn't had the space to at Champion. So draft picks was one of them. And I did did this research expecting to find some stuff in, in the literature. It, it seemed like a natural thing to me that you would look at population statistics and something called extreme value theory, which says, okay, we kind of know the shape of a distribution in the population. We can make some assumptions about it. And that tells you something about the extremes of that distribution as well. And what you get with the draft is you're picking from the extremes of the population, the most talented players in the population. So it seemed to me that a natural place to look for statistics about the draft would be in the extremes of distributions. And it turns out that there's statistical distributions that actually have very common properties in their extremes. So you can do this for, you don't have to assume that it's a normal population. There's quite a wide range of um, distributions that do this. So, and then when I looked in the literature, no one seemed to have made that connection and unless you went back to about 1900 when um, Francis Galton had talked about something called Galton's difference problem, which was what's the difference between first and second in a worldwide competition compared to the difference between second and third? And he'd used that same technique. But no one seemed to have applied it to economic theory, to auctions or to the draft. So I just put the two things together and, and saw how it looked and it seemed to fit the the actual um, value that that teams get from players in a number of sports pretty well. So that then becomes a way of valuing each draft pick um, in terms of points, then becomes a way that if you have an agreed value for draft points, you can do all sorts of things with it. You can award points to teams instead of picks. Uh, You can punish them using um, taking away points. It's, It's, again, turning that sort of very crude measure of, oh, a first round pick into something that's more continuous and, and has a, a, a value in between, say, pick 13 and pick 14 or, or between a first round and second round pick more generally. So, yeah, the AFL was was interested in pursuing that and sort of a few years later they, they brought in a similar point system. Um, we did I did a bit of research with them on, on some of that as well. But that, that's sort of the approach I take to a lot of these things. It's just to say, look, there's some natural distributions out there or there's a physical model that makes sense to apply. You know, if you're looking at what's the probability of kicking a goal from here, the first thing you look at is, well, what is the angle subtended by the goal face from where you are? Is it four degrees? Is it seven degrees? Whatever that number is. And you know that the variation of the ball off your boot, it's not going to be a normal distribution because there's, you know, there's some weird physics involved in it, but it's going to be, it's going to have a standard deviation that's related to that angle and that you can make predictions about the possibility of, of that going through the goals. So, Fitting to those sort of models across all the different research that I've done is, is sort of the, the approach I've taken rather than going straight to let's get a lot of variables, let's do some regression and, and then you know pick apart what comes out of it. What's something else 
that is unexplored in AFL that's not draft picks that you think could be done better or are you surprised that there just hasn't been a lot of work involved in? Oh, where do we start? So I, I look at um, the player tracking and, and the thing that coaches talk about is, is space. You know, you, you need to develop dangerous space, stop the opposition using dangerous space. So I know that um, Champion Data has uh, well, a VU student, Bart Spencer at the moment is, is starting to do this, some other VU research in this area. That, that's definitely where I would like to go to explore that sort of relationship between the space you create and the success in terms of scoring goals. But the, the sort of skill sets that I, I think need to come through a bit more in the AFL are informatics. So how do you design a layout and graphs that best represent the sport? How do you visualise the data and make it interactive but without emphasising the wrong thing? So that's something that I'm really interested in, you know, coaches especially during a game should be watching the game and during the week they should be watching video as well so you don't want to overload them with just pages of numbers and that's what I told St Kilda when I started there I want to take the numbers you know I don't want to give you a 200 page report I've seen assistant coaches at other clubs that carry those big reports around as though they're bibles and if they just spend enough time studying these bibles they will have a revelation and they'll work out how to play the game better and they do learn a fair bit out of that but it's also you know very much diminishing returns after you've you've understood the first few headline things so yeah really really redesigning screens of of data or graphics to emphasize the things that are controllable and the things that are mattering i talked about you know that mapping of of your analytical reporting to to motivating stories. That's I, I don't know if that's a skill set that is regularly taught, but there's some good practitioners out there. And then the big one in AFL is that researchers just don't get access to data. You know we've got Fitzroy, thank you, which gives them access to scores and stats, but more than that, the the sequence and the context of, of stats they you know it's very hard to be able to do analysis on. Most sports have have opened that up over the last few years. Also, uh, I'd love to see more being done in simulation. I think that that's sort of well into the future, but I know you had Max Barry on the podcast and you've seen his incredible, just with a few simple rules, um, simulating of, of an AFL game. It would take a while for coaches to trust a simulation to the point where they'd, make dis- they'd change decisions based on it, but... The more sophisticated it is, the closer we get to helping it and to finding novel strategies by having a physical model of, of, of each player and of the rules that they're following in terms of chasing the ball and, and how they're spacing themselves compared to the opposition and and the ball. So that, that's you know the sort of areas I'd love to see explored and data is at the, the centre of all of them. You know, just let's get access to it somehow. This communication exercise uh, you talk about between you and the coaches, the assistant coaches, how has that changed along your journey and what tips would you give to people that want to work in this space? Yeah, so this is a really tricky one. So it's the clubs that need to change first and and I'm seeing this change across the board that they've recognised. They've gone from, you know, Moneyball 15 years ago where, oh, we just need some better data to, oh, we actually need to have a database that's relevant to us and we need to have a process in place that enables us to take this into account in our decisions. Um, So 
you know, club budgets are really tight. Football department budgets are tight. So just hiring a graduate data science student and they're not cheap uh, and throwing them into a club environment probably isn't going to work for them unless the, the student's got some pretty special communication and, and self-starter skills. So, yeah, the, the, it really is about putting support around that role, potentially having a community of data analysts that are able to talk across clubs and especially across sports. That's, that's where you do a lot of learning without being... You know, feeling like you have to hold back because you're revealing club secrets. Yeah, I, I think we, we've seen some data central analysts go into clubs. We've got Rob Younger at Port Adelaide. We've got Binook at um, at Adelaide. Uh, there's a few more around, um, mostly cross recruiting. But yeah, there, there's definitely a need for a theoretical framework, better data, and support for. Uh, people to be able to make mistakes analysing that data because everyone starts off as an, a naive analyst thinking that they can solve the world with better you know, better analysis of their data. Are you able to give an example in terms of how your messaging has changed with communication? It, it's still in flux, really. So I know to take it slower now. So if I'm talking to a community of statisticians or, or analytics professionals, that's a completely different conversation to how I'd start it with a coach. So I'd start by going through the basics of why do we think we can use a probabilistic model to explain a shot at goal and just get them on board with that then start to talk about, all right, you're talking about the phases of the game. Here's how we see them in, in, in the data that we have. So it comes out of a stoppage, gets turned over the next phase. What do you guys call that? A stoppage reply or a stoppage defence or it's, it's whatever it is. And then talking about, right, this happens this many times out of these situations. And then I can filter that down and say, hey, did you know that the teams that you're playing against are actually doing this more often? Ah, we didn't have that knowledge before. So it's sort of a gentle process. And yeah, a lot of the time they're ahead of the coaches are ahead of the analysts in what they think is going on out there and they're usually right, but it's good to do the analysis anyway and give them a different perspective or a couple of different dimensions that they mightn't have considered that, that went into it. So earlier on you mentioned uh, speaking their language. What about coaches speaking the analyst's language? So do they get much training and support, I guess, in terms of understanding all this work you and the other analysts are doing? Yeah, we're seeing more of that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not actually sure if it's in the AFL coaching accreditation yet, but definitely coaches are being taught to recognise biases, you know, about hindsight bias, about recency bias, seeing what you expect to see when you watch a video. What's it called? Confirmation bias, that's one. So there's that going on. I, I think, though... We don't need to go too deep into uh, what is multiple re linear regression. You know, that's it, it'd be nice if they understood that and what comes out of that, but it's not necessary for coaching. Um, so that's about where I'd stop. You know, they they want to hear about correlation. They want to hear about you know direct effect sizes of one thing into another. They want to hear about what seems to be luck and what seems to be skill, and they want to have a good disagreement about that as well. But no, as long as they're willing to, and, and this is the experience, they will just ask and ask and ask until they have a level of trust in what you're doing. Or maybe they'll have a level of distrust and you'll have to live with that. How do you explain this concept of luck versus skill? 
<laughs> How do you explain that? Um, the best thing to do is to read um, Michael Mobison's um, The Success Equation, Skill Plus Luck, basically. And the, the thing that I've borrowed from that is his idea of the paradox of skill, which is when you have two competitors who are both experts, both highly skilled, when they compete, the winner of that contest is more likely to be determined by luck than by the difference in the skill between them. Um, and you see that he gives quite a few examples in sport and outside of sport, that sort of thing. And, and my background actually is backgammon, which has just given me a, an insight as well. So backgammon is the the framework that I originally applied to, to football to because it's got some you know similar mix of luck and skill. It's got different scores that you can get um, at the end of each game, which then adds up to a match. So, yeah, using that idea of, of a backgammon match or two players running for the ball, looking at over time, you know, maybe one player is going to win. Let's say you've got a really experienced player and a third-year player, both running towards the ball, it's just bouncing, bobbling around, who's going to win that contest? The third-year player is going to win that maybe 40, 45% of the time. And what determines the contests where they did win it? Was it because they did something better? They shifted their body weight at the right time that the more experienced player didn't? Um, no, probably not. It was probably just that the ball bounced in a slightly better way for them. And that sort of thing happens throughout the game thousands of times. You know, the ball gets influenced by wind, by spin, by bounce, just any little thing that can add up and your player happens to be on the right side of the contest and the opposition player isn't. So just seeing examples of that and then saying, well, okay, so my example was centre clearances. For a whole season, every team is pretty much 50% plus or minus one and a half standard errors. We can do some research into what combinations of people win more clearances and maybe they'll win 53%, 54%. That's still not a big difference over a season. So if you then say, right, if we won... Let's say we only won 35% of the clearances in a game, and that's a pretty regular thing because of how many times it happens. Um, you know, there might only be 28 centre bounces in a game. What's a more realistic prediction? If we played them again... Would it be 35%? No, it would be you know, 48%, 49%. So the difference between that 35 and the sort of near 50% number, and you can use a James Stein estimator, you can use other processes to make it formal, but just as an informal discussion, that 13% that we didn't get was kind of luck. And then you can say, oh, if we had of uh, that 13% was worth how much on the scoreboard because we know that getting possession out of a clearance is on average worth this much, although you can then go down to whether it was a clean clearance, whether it was you know set up as a clearance with players ahead of the ball, all these other things that come into it. But on average, let's say that clearance is worth a bit over a point. So then on the scoreboard you can say, right, so we were about four and a half points down on luck out of clearances. Okay, so our supply, if the ball was down, let's talk about what happened when we had supply. Let's talk about what happened when we didn't have supply of the ball and really analyse the games in those phases where you've got a lot more data points that add up to, well, still a fair bit of luck, but at least a bit more of skill and, and strategy and structure that we're setting up. So centre bounces is, I guess, your most popular example in terms of it being a lot of luck. So what's the opposite? So what's a football thing that involves the most amount of skill 
<laughs> now that's a really good question. There's really not much. I mean, even trying to control the pace of the game by complete lockdown of possession and just you know trying to keep the ball and soak up time, it, you know, you can't do that reliably for more than a minute either. No, it, it really just comes out on a different time scale. You know that the team is adaptive over time and seems to have successful strategies over time and you can separate that reliably into, you know, is it stopping the opposition from making ground, for instance, um, making ground and retaining possession. Those sort of things are consistently signs of good teams. Uh, what sports do you look to for ideas with regards to applying them to AFL? Anywhere I can. So I've, I've worked in yeah probably 15 or 20 sports over the years and gained a lot of different world views out of that. So one of my clients has been kickboxing for, for quite a while and um, just seeing the completely different culture that goes into that sport, you know. But in, in terms of the research that it, that's out there, I've talked about, um, yeah, researching the quality of space and dangerous space on the field. So German soccer is probably the, the leader in this. Um, the There's... Um, the Deutsche Fußballliga, the, the German Football League, actually sets standards for data collectors that describes the game exactly the way they want it to with the terminology that they use at the elite level. Um, and Daniel Link is, is a good example of that and he's written a book on dangerous space in, um, in soccer. And his colleague is also called Daniel Link who then looks at the GPS stuff with, with an E their colleagues so they're, they're terrific um uh, there's also Ulf Brefeld who's done incredible research using um machine learning developing physical models of players knowing that they're running in this direction at three meters per second where could they be in two seconds what cues are they responding to getting towards simulation knowing that a formation of players when the ball gets within 25 meters of goal tends to be successful where another formation or speed of players isn't. Um, so that sort of research is going on already in, in Germany. Um, Daniel Mehmet, Jürgen Perl are, are others that are uh, working in that area. That's, you know, if we had the right data and, and maybe vision analysis will, will get us there before we ever get to GPS data, the coaches, once they trusted that source of data, could really do a lot with it, with um, measuring, right, on average, when we set up this structure, does it get someone free or not? Even if we don't use them, is someone free? So those sort of metrics, which we just don't have, unless you do it laboriously, manually at the moment, you can start to automate with better techniques that these guys are, are developing. In sports communication, I suppose, so that bridging that gap between analysts and, and coaches and then players, I really look at guys like Bill Gerrard in, in England, or in Leeds. He's worked with Saracens Rugby. He's worked on, in the continent as well. He talks about performance analysis as a decision support system and how you set up that sort of framework. And even someone like Vince Gennaro, who, who works in North American sports, very good at that. And then the, the, the other ones that I sort of follow online mainly, but I've, I've met most of them... Um, Nate Silver, of course, in, in, in North America, um, you know, an incredibly heavily footnoted book, The Signal and the Noise. You've, you've got to slog through that and, and get the most out of it. Tom Tango is another one, mainly works in baseball, uses physics and physical models as the basis of what he does, and then what's the variation of that that makes sense, you know, with hitting a, hitting a ball with a, a cylindrical bat. Kathy Evans, who I think you, you came across in, in Pittsburgh for how she does it as a sort of treatment study or... 
you know, what's the effect size of all this stuff? Um, and Andrew Thomas in ice hockey, and ice hockey's actually got a lot more in common with AFL than, than many other sports and has the same sort of difficulties of continuous play and how do you really value what's happening on the ice? Um, go with some Australian researchers as well. So you've had Stephanie Kovalchik on your podcast. Um, she does terrific work in tennis. Martin Ingram in tennis is doing some good work with Bayesian stuff as well. The VU guys, Sam Robertson, Alice Sweeting and, and the other VU staff and students. Definitely recommend Carl Jackson at Champion Data if you can talk to him. And and then there's this amazing community of you know so-called amateurs such as yourself that um, you know like Tony Cork who's a professional data scientist and someone who you'd go to for the absolute best in techniques and, and solving your, your problems and then on the side he spends hours and hours each week just doing footy stuff and you know so many times I just look at his stuff and say ah okay I can use that technique which I hadn't thought of and there's a lot of examples of other people doing doing that sort of stuff as well so there's plenty of research plenty of writing and and approaches to admire out there and yeah all we can do is spend time each week hopefully keeping up with some of it. So I guess more formally how what advice would you give to someone who wants to be an AFL club analyst? What sort of skills should they pick up formally and informally? Yeah, I reckon that's changing all the time. So I'm, I'm seeing especially sports science students now with really good data science um, and R and other tools, you know, they're, they're taking that on naturally and, and that's a really good place to start. So then it's about just bringing something some of your passion to it and still in Australia it is normally about going to your local club or to your not quite professional environment and getting some hands-on experience with collection of data or analysis of of real world data and talking to coaches and and working out what they're wanting um, and then working your way through that way that that's not ideal but I don't see that changing for a while yet until there is really a, a community of sports data analysts that can move professionally through clubs. Um, I'm hoping that evolves sooner rather than later and we've got you know, potentially conference, you know, the math sport conference is a way to, to bring more of those sort of people into the frame. But, yeah, that there is still quite a knowledge gap between the sort of statistical approach to, to sport or the analytical numeric approach and what happens with coaching day-to-day. And there always will be quite different worlds it's it's about learning enough of that bridge to to be dangerous what do you mean by dangerous what does that mean to you (laughs) um to make the right sort of mistakes so to give some advice and then go back over it later and go oh actually the data didn't support that but to actually just take some risks and and work out you know oh i didn't quite have the context of that decision right i used some data without thinking of this thing and I should have had another conversation with the coach or with another analyst about what they're really looking for. Oh, what's been your favourite sports analysis that you've seen? Oh, favourite sports analysis. And why was it? It, it would be, um, yeah, if you can see Ulf Brefeld talk anywhere, just, just get there because he talks about, you know, trajectories of ball movement and patterns of play and um, patterns of team movement in ways that, if you're really into the the analytical side of it, you'll just see so much future in it. So that that that'd be the the top recommendation there. Where I started was yeah. So I said out of backgammon, it was, it was about putting a value on things that are happening on the field, putting a, a continuous value on it. So 
you know, if you're 75 metres out near the boundary line, you have good quality possession, then on average you'll ma- you'll have the next score maybe 64% of the time and that's worth a net positive 1.2 points on the scoreboard. So doing that and refining that sort of model for all for as much as you can and then getting the context of that as well. So what do you know about which players are ahead of the ball, what the formation is, what, what the options of the player are, just refining that sort of model over time and, and applying it that sort of approach to whatever you can. So joining up that continuous numeric model with qualitative inputs and in... in in recruitment, that's really important as well. So I look at the data that we get for uh, the feeder comps, you know, for a, a NAB league or for the national championships, and it's not much more than just counting or a little bit of context and this guy had, you know, 18 touches under pressure and he did this with it. Well, that's a reasonable start. But my weighting of that data against an expert opinion at the moment would definitely favour the expert. And that just means we've got to get better about firstly collecting data on the players we're interested in, but also improving the analysis we can do on it because at the moment you're more likely to make the wrong decision just by counting stats or looking at kicking efficiency. We had one guy that we were looking at who had an out-of-this-world kicking efficiency in the the high 80s and that instantly is just a, a sort of red alert for me. Because I think, why is this guy hitting so many targets with his kicking? And you go to the video and you can see it straight away. It's because he only kicks sideways, backwards to a safe option. And so then is that the player you want in your team? Well, maybe that guy can make can play a specific role, but you've really got to then dismiss that number or at least adjust it down to say he's a low-risk kicker. And that's not something that comes out of the data naturally. You've got to create these categories for yourself and and get the context right to, to make the right decision. So in the meantime, yeah, the encourage the recruiters to make qualitative and quantitative judgments in a number of areas and then evaluate over time what's working and what's not. But there's no sort of quick fix for saying, right, we're just going to go straight to a data model. There's um, It's too complex a sport to do that. Are you able to give an example where you think something should be done more based on numbers or I guess more purely on numbers? Um, I'd like them to change fixturing um, based on, you know, <laughs> a fairer assessment of where the teams are, something a bit more dynamic. And, and they've taken one of my suggestions on board in the past and I've done some work with the AFL on that, but um, they're not really up for radical fixturing. I'd, I actually like the World Cup, the Soccer World Cup to change too. There's fixturing ideas you can do with that that people have come up with. Yeah, we're sort of... There's all sorts of analysis being done where people are inventing quite interesting systems. Like, you know, you get the financial system, you've got blockchain, okay? That's useful for some things and and potentially revolutionary once you've worked out the full consequences. So I think that's coming through in a lot of different areas of sport, uh, whether it's better vision analysis, whether it's better blending of qualitative and quantitative, like I said, or, yeah, just being able to give the tools to more people inside a club or inside an organisation that lets them make their own, answer their own questions and then come up with better questions. Oh, that was Charlie again, sorry. (laughs) 
So I guess just final uh, two questions before we leave things off. On Twitter, Tony recently had a bit of interaction with uh, Matt Cowgill of The Ark on whether team rating should be updated within Sims. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it was a really interesting debate. No, I'm with Tony on this, um, that there is going to be drift of team ratings due to personnel changes, due to whatever, but I don't think much of that is related to the score that they had the previous week. So there is the potential that, you know, they get more confidence out of a win. Some of that self-defeating, you, you see that there's... Um, Loss aversion is a massive motivating, fa- motivating factor as well within games and for teams that have come off a loss. So that almost cancels itself out. I, I wouldn't be changing a team rating based on a simulated score because it's not new information, but I would allow it to drift based on known variation over a, se- a season. But I'd do that sort of, um, uh, yeah, I, I would be reasonably cautious applying that as well. And lastly... To do with uh, variants, how do you think modelers can better incorporate variants into their, say, team models? And how do you think about variation in performance? Yeah, and that's a good question too, because variation is is key to to knowing what the signal is. If you know the size of the variation, you've got a better idea of where the signal might be. Simulation's a big help for that, just being able to get a reasonably basic model, you know, as realistic as you can, but even, you know, what I used to do with, with flipping coins and, and dice, if, if you load it appropriately, you can get some sense of what the variation in outcomes is. And my experience is that the variation in real-world situations is not all that much bigger than just the statistical variation that you'd expect out of chance. Um, so we know that there's things that go into that difference, like you know things we don't know about the team's skill, different strategies they might apply from week to week, personnel changes, you know, things we can adjust for, home ground advantage, some personnel changes. But, yeah, the difference between a very simple statistical model's standard deviation and what we see with a really good predictor is actually smaller than you might think, and that gives me confidence that most of the noise is not you know, that the teams come out and suddenly played five or six goals better that week. It's just due to uh, having the rub of the green that day. Thank you very much for joining me today, Darren. I had a very good time and I hope you did as well. Yeah, no, that was terrific. Thanks, Robert.